look at John chapter 14, verse 1 to 14. I'll be reading the passage and then expounding it. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, is in me. or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's turn to the Lord in a word of prayer to ask the help of the Holy Spirit to understand his word. Father, again, we thank you for your word, your precious word. And we pray that as we hear your word today, that you would speak to us in our very situations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, we're continuing in our series in John chapter 13 to 17. And this portion of the scriptures has become known as the Upper Room Discourse. These are the final words of Jesus before he goes to his death on the cross. He's speaking to those closest to him, to his disciples, and he's speaking to them to prepare them for what life will be like when he's gone. A few weeks ago, Joel opened up the series for us and he showed us Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and encouraging them to wash one another's feet. And in that sermon, we saw that the people of God, One Covenant Church, you and I, we are to be defined by service to one another. Last week, we saw that we are also to be defined by love for one another. In today's passage, we will see that another defining feature of God's people is faith. But not any kind of faith. Look at John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Friends, we live in anxious times, don't we? We're anxious about our health, our relationships, and whether or not we're doing anything meaningful in our lives. We were anxious enough before COVID-19, and with COVID-19, our anxieties have just been taken up 10 notches. We're an anxious people in an anxious society. Now, what is God's remedy to anxiety? Now, before I get into this, let me just say this. Anxiety disorders are very real mental health issues. So what I'm going to be saying in this passage is not belittling the work of professionals that are helping those with anxiety disorders. There's no shame in us seeking professional help when we have mental health issues. 
And what we're saying is not competing with, but complementing what good professionals are already doing. What we're saying is there may be a spiritual root to those anxieties. So friends, if you are someone who is suffering from anxiety disorders, I don't want this sermon to make you feel guilty. I want this sermon to encourage you. I don't want you to feel any shame at all if you need to seek help for your mental health issues. God works in all ways. He's telling us that there's a spiritual root to some of the anxieties, but sometimes it's a physiological root as well. And we should praise God for the mental health professionals that are among us that work, uh, do very good work. So I'm just saying that up front. When we say that God has a remedy for anxiety, we're not saying that we do away with professional help. Professional help can be very useful and very helpful. In this passage, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. The disciples are troubled. Why? Because the man who they have wrapped their lives around for three years is going to his death. And more than that, at the end of chapter 13, one of their best, Simon Peter, Jesus has predicted that he will fall away. Now, if you were them, wouldn't you be anxious? What are we going to do with our lives? What's the meaning of life after all that we've done over the last three years? And Jesus says in verse 1, this is the remedy to your anxiety. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And that can also be translated, trust in God. Trust also in me. So this is not just any kind of faith, but this is a kind of faith that will calm your anxious and troubled hearts. It's a faith that has substance. It's a faith that has reality. It is a faith that is not just wishful thinking because it is anchored in the person of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And this passage shows us that it is a faith that shows you that you are going somewhere, knowing someone, and doing something. This is the kind of faith that will calm our anxious hearts. Come with me to verse 2. Jesus says in verse 2 that there are many rooms in his father's house. And as he is going to the cross and later his resurrection, he is preparing a place for them and will, verse 3, come back to bring them home. Now what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about heaven where God dwells. And he's saying that through his death and later resurrection, he's securing a place there for his people. And because he's securing a place there for his people, he will surely come back to bring them home. In a place, in a world where we're anxious about where home is, God says, friends, that your home is with him in heaven. I was reading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And one of the early pages describes how his family home was burnt down when he was a child. It was a happy home, but one day the flames engulfed the home. And after that, Martin Lloyd-Jones never quite felt at home wherever he lived. They rebuilt the family home, he moved around a lot, but everywhere he went, he never felt quite at home. Now some say that this probably made him the great preacher that he was, because wherever he went, he never felt at home on earth. He was always longing for heaven. And friends, maybe you feel like that too. Maybe you've moved around a lot. Maybe there are just things about your domestic life that never make you feel that you're at home anywhere that you're at. You're never quite at rest, never quite at peace. 
never quite feeling like you belong, even in your own home and even in your own country. Well, friends, the Bible teaches us that because of our sin against Almighty God, we're all in exile in one way or another. We're apart from God. We're not at where our hearts truly belong. And the Bible also tells us that your true home, friends, and my true home is with God. In Hebrews 12.22, it calls the place where our hearts belong the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And this is what Jesus tells his disciples. Your home is with God in heaven, and I go to secure a place for you. In verse 5, we see that the disciples are confused. Thomas, one of the disciples, says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus replies in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, I am the way home. By believing in me, the barrier of sin and death are removed and you can now come out of exile and come home to be with God. Friends, the reason why we're not at home with God is because of our sin and rebellion against Him. And Jesus will go to His death and to His resurrection in order to shatter the barrier that prevents us from truly coming home. He deals with sin decisively. He deals with death decisively so that we can truly come home to be with God. He says that He is the way. But He also says that He is the truth. How? Well, he reveals to us what ultimate reality is. In the coming of Jesus Christ, he answers the biggest questions of life. He tells us where we come from. He tells us what our meaning and purpose in life is. He explains to us why the world is so messed up and why we are so messed up. And he shows us how things can be made right. But he also tells us that he is the life. He's the way. He's the path that leads us back to the Father. He's the truth that reveals the truth of God and of us. But he is also the life. Why is Jesus the life? Well, friends, because in his soon-to-come death and resurrection, Jesus will show us that he is the one that embodies the indestructible life of the ever-living God, as Bruce Mill puts it. And he will be the one that grants us eternal life if we believe in him. Do you see what Jesus is saying to an anxious people, to a people who don't quite feel at home? He's saying, believe in me. Trust in me. When you do that, you get truth. You get life. And you get home. You get the home that your heart has been longing for to an anxious, anxious world. Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. To a world that never feels quite at peace or quite at home. Jesus says, come to me. I will take you to the Father where your heart's home truly is. But this is also a faith that does not just bring us somewhere. It brings us to someone. Look at the second part of verse 6. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Do you notice what an explosive claim 
Jesus is making here? He's saying that if you come to him, you're coming to the Father, the Father God. And he's saying that there is only one way that you can come to the Father, and it's true him. He's saying that when you know him, you know the true and living God. In this short 14 verses, Jesus is making some very profound claims about who he is and about his relationship with God the Father. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Look at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father, referring to God. And verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 10, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, the Father who dwells in me. And verse 11, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Although he is distinct from God the Father, he is here claiming equality with God. And not only is he claiming equality with God, he's claiming unity with the Father. You believe in God? Believe also in me. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. There's a mutual indwelling between Father and Son. And friends, these are the passages that we go to to build the important doctrine of the triunity of God or the Trinity. Friends, this is who Jesus is. The Son of God, who is God Himself. And He says, when you believe in Him, when you trust in Him, you know the Father. In verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Even after three years of being with Jesus, the disciple Philip still does not understand who Jesus is. And Jesus says in verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Friends, you see, in Jesus' day, many of the Jews, they longed for a first-hand experience of God. And maybe you've heard this said by some of your friends. If God shows up and He meets me, I will believe in Him. And maybe there's a longing in your heart as well to have a direct encounter with Almighty God. Well, friends, the truth is, the Old Testament and Jesus are telling you it's not a very good idea. The reason being, God is perfect in His holiness. And you and I are sinful. He is perfectly clean and we are dirty. God is like the most powerful antiseptic in the universe. And unfortunately for you and me, we are like bacteria. And so if bacteria desires a direct encounter with the most powerful antiseptic in the universe, it's generally not a good idea. We will be obliterated. We will be burnt up like Goreng Pisang. Jesus is telling us that if we are to encounter God, it must be mediated. It must be mediated by Him. He's telling us that although we have a longing to encounter God and we cannot encounter Him directly, it does not mean that there's no way of encountering God because Jesus is the way to the Father. 
Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. He's saying, believe in me. If you know me, you know God the Father. Don Carson says that Jesus embodies the supreme revelation of God. He narrates God to us. He tells us who God is and what he is like so that when we know him and when we believe in him, we have come face to face with the true and living God. Jesus is saying, I am God. Believe in me and you will encounter the true and living God. In verse 11, Jesus says, you should believe what I say is true purely because of who I am. I'm God. But if not, he says, believe on account of the works. Now, what are these works? The works were the miracles or the signs that Jesus did. Last year, we covered John chapter 1 to 12. And that portion of the Gospel of John is sometimes known as the book of signs. And the reason why it's known as the book of signs is because it records for us seven miraculous signs that Jesus did, revealing that he is God and that he is God's king who has come to save. In John chapter 2, he turns water into wine. In John chapter 4, he heals the official son. In John chapter 5, he heals the lame man. In John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. In John chapter 6, again, he walks on water. John chapter 9, he heals the blind man. And finally, in John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. What were all these miracles meant to do? All these miracles were meant to point to the reality that Jesus is God's king, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is God himself. And Jesus is saying, if you don't believe my words, believe the miracles that I have done because these miracles should point you to the reality that I am who I say I am. Friends, let that sink in for a moment. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. And if you know Jesus you know the true and living God. You are in an intimate, vital, living relationship with the God of the universe. You are encountering Him on a daily basis. Friends, if we truly believe that, what would that do to the anxieties and the troubles in our hearts? Yes, we need help to continue believing that, which is why we gather together to worship as a church. We hear the preaching of God's word. We receive the sacraments. We're together in community groups. All of that are means to help us believe the truth that Jesus is God, that he is the son of God who has come for us. If you know me, as Jesus says, you know the God of the universe. There is no need for any other kind of spiritual encounter. You have all you need. In Jesus Christ. Because when you know him, you know the Father. Well, Jesus goes on. Not only are you going somewhere, not only do you know someone, you are doing something important with your life when you come to Jesus. It's very interesting, friends, that one source of anxiety in many people today is birthed out of boredom. 
They're anxious because they're bored. Now, why is that the case? You're anxious because you're bored. You're bored because you're not sure what to do with your life. You wonder, what is there any meaning in what I'm doing? In my studies, in my work, in my CCAs, in my relationships? Is there any meaning at all? I feel so bored. And because you're bored, you get anxious. Because you're anxious, you, you try to fill your life with things, but you continue to be bored because you don't know what life means and what it's meant for. Well, Jesus is telling us here in verses 12 to 14 that if you believe in him, you are about a great work. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus has been at work. And those who believe in him, verse 12, will do his works, but not just his works, they will do greater works than his. Friends, there is no room for boredom in the Christian life because Jesus has given us something to do. And that work is the very work that he has done and that he continues to do through us in the world. The works that Jesus did, and verse 12, even greater works than what Jesus did. Look at verse 12. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So friends, we are engaged in Jesus' work and greater works than Jesus. Now friends, does this mean that we will do more spectacular miracles than Jesus? I know some people claim this. Some people try this. But friends, even the apostles that came soon after Jesus didn't do the kind of spectacular miracles that Jesus did. Yes, they healed the sick, but no one among them fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. No one among them walked on water. So it cannot be that these greater works mean more spectacular miracles than Jesus did. Remember again what the purpose of the miracles were. The purpose of the miracles was to attest to the reality that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. The reason He can do these miracles is because He is God. So it cannot mean that we will do greater miracles than Jesus. Even the apostles did not feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. And I know many claim to do great miracles like Jesus did, but so far I have not read any newspaper reports about people feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. If that happens, please you know, send me the email or the article. I'd love to get in touch uh, to find out more. So what does it mean that we are about greater works than Jesus? I think the key to understanding verse 12 is to look at the word because and to understand why we are doing greater works. It says in verse 12, because Jesus is going to the Father. We are doing greater works because Jesus is going to his death and he will be raised again. So these greater works are in light of Jesus' greater work in his death and resurrection. You see, friends, what happens when Jesus goes to the cross and he rises again is that he makes crystal clear the way of salvation. He makes crystal clear to the entire world that God will redeem a sinful people and restore a broken world through faith in what Jesus does on the cross and in his resurrection. 
up to this point in salvation history throughout Old Testament, it's all been hinted at. Even in the lives of the disciples, it's all been hinted at. But once Jesus goes to the cross, once he's raised from the dead, it becomes crystal clear to his disciples that the way that Jesus will redeem a sinful people, the way that Jesus will restore a broken world is through faith in this Jesus who has lived, who has died, who rises again and ascends to the Father. So these greater works are greater because they are clearer. We have a much clearer message today than the people of old. We know the gospel is in its entirety because Jesus has gone to his death and has risen again. It's greater in its clarity. But friends, the second thing we know is that it's greater in its scope. Jesus, friends, great as he was, lived three years and ministered for three years and only reached a small number of people in Palestine. Subsequent to that, friends, the church in every generation has taken this gospel and taken it to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation on earth. Friends, the greater work is a clearer work, and the greater work is larger in scope because we take this gospel that has been made clear to us through Jesus' death and resurrection, and we take it to the nations. This is the work that Jesus has left us to do. And this is the work that Jesus continues to do in us and through us. Friends, look at verse 13. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And in verse 14, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, friends, is Jesus promising us that as long as we tag in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, that he will answer every single one of our prayers? God, give me a Ferrari in Jesus' name. Ferrari up here. God, give me a raise. I name it in Jesus' name. Try it. Try it, friends. Try it. Try it and you will know that it's not what this is teaching. Friends, the reason this is not teaching it is because we need to understand what it means to ask in Jesus' name. It's not just tacking Jesus' name onto the end of your prayers. To ask something in Jesus' name is to ask as Jesus would ask, is to come to the Father as if you were Jesus. It's to come to the Father and ask Him the things that Jesus would ask the Father. To ask in Jesus' name is to be so identified with Him and his mission, and his purposes, that when you speak to God and ask him for things, you are asking the things that Jesus would ask. That is what it means to ask in Jesus' name. Friends, God is at work through Jesus in the world, and he's inviting us into that work through prayer. Because in prayer, we're plugged into Jesus and into his plan. And through our prayers, we become aligned with Jesus. Our hearts, our minds, our wills, our hands, we become aligned with Jesus. And as we ask, God is pleased to answer because this is exactly what Jesus wants done on earth. And if Jesus wants it on earth, it is good for the world 
and it is something that God wants. Friends, what would happen if we truly believe this? If we truly believe that prayer plugs us in to what Jesus desires for the world and for your life. We all struggle with prayer, friends, which is why we need to come together in prayer. Because when we come together in prayer and we engage with God together, Jesus reveals his heart and we bring those things to God in prayer. Friend, let me say to you that we will never be able to serve Jesus effectively if we were not in prayer personally as well as corporately. If we're not in prayer corporately together as a church, we will not be able to effectively serve Jesus because in our corporate prayer gatherings, God speaks to us through his word. We unpack the word and we bring his word to him in prayer together. Prayer draws us together, friends. And I will say to you, if you intend to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, faithful to God's word, you need to be plugged in to prayer both personally and together as a church. When we pray, friends, heaven touches earth and Jesus' mission advances. When we pray, friends, in his name, when we're so aligned with his mission and his purpose and his will, God listens and he's pleased to answer and we rejoice because we are connected to him and his purposes here on earth. Friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're heading to a heavenly home like no other. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have known God, the Heavenly Father. And right here it tells us that if you have believed in Jesus, you are called to a greater work. And the fact is, friends, if you are already a follower of Jesus, you're already doing this work. You just might not be aware of it. You may need to be more intentional about it, but you are already about this work. Why, friends? Because it doesn't have to be extravagant or loud. It doesn't have to involve standing in front of an audience speaking to thousands. It doesn't have to involve any public ministry at all, but we are already involved in a greater work. Now, in his book, The Walk, Stephen Smallman tells a story of when, one of, when his church was hosting a program called Christianity Explored. And Christianity Explored is a study that introduces people to Jesus using Mark's gospel. There's usually someone in front speaking, and then there are people leading groups discussing the gospel of Mark and the questions that non-Christians have. Now, some people in Stephen Smallman's church, they felt really inadequate. They said, you know, I, I don't really feel that I can lead a group. And I certainly can't stand in front of an audience to give a talk about the gospel. But one of the things about Christianity Explored is that they always began with a meal. People would come from the office to go to Christianity Explored, and to have a hot meal waiting for them was a big draw. So some of the people who were not confident enough to, to, to lead a group or who just couldn't because of their personality, they volunteered to make food for the participants. And over the weeks, some of those who attended would feel more drawn to Jesus and they would want to talk more about what's happening in their hearts. And who do you think they would speak to? They'd speak to the people serving them food. And many times, that brought them one step closer to Jesus Christ. 
So friends, even making food is an important part of bringing the gospel to the nations. Stephen Smallman puts it this way, when our heart's desire is to see people transformed by the power of the gospel, God will take that desire and find many ways to put us to work in his great plan of salvation. Friends, what is your part in this work? Could it be arriving earlier on Sunday morning to set up chairs? What does setting up chairs have to do with reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, got a place to sit, ma. Can listen to the gospel, ma. Without you setting up the chairs, the person may leave. The person is not in a conducive environment to hear the gospel. And by the way, we do need more people to volunteer to set up chairs. So please, if you are able to do that work, Yu Heng is sitting all the way at the back there. Uh, please speak to him and we'll put you to good gospel work. Perhaps it's to usher or to do the audiovisual. This is a hard, hard task, man. It's a hard task. The people who do it are so engaged in this that, that sometimes I worry that it's going to take away from them being able to listen to the sermon well being able to engage with God. But you know why they're doing it? Because they love you and they want to see the gospel of Jesus going out here as well as on the live stream. Could you volunteer to do that? That too is part of taking the gospel to the nations. Playing music, teaching the children, hosting a community group. All these are part and parcel of taking the gospel to the nations. Friends, being involved in this greater work does not need to be extravagant, does not need to be flashy. In fact, it's the simple things we do that matter the most as Jesus works through you in this greater work. Friends, what is the kind of faith that calms, calms troubled hearts? What is the kind of faith that draws us near to God? It's the kind of faith in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, that shows us that we're going somewhere, that we're knowing someone, and that we're doing something important with our lives, even if it feels pedestrian, even if it does not feel extraordinary. We need eyes to see that. We just need to be more intentional about it. But you and I are already about a great work. As we get to the end of the sermon, some of you are getting a bit anxious. You're anxious because you're wondering to yourself, how in the world am I supposed to muster up this kind of faith that puts to death my anxieties? So ironically, you're getting anxious because you cannot believe that you can have the faith that you're not anxious about. You're feeling anxious. Well, friends, let me just close with this. It's important for us to know that it is not the strength of your faith that matters. It is the object of your faith. A story was told of two people who got onto a plane, which seems like such a different world today. The first was a seasoned traveler. The second was someone who had read in detail all the statistics about plane crashes. Both of them got onto the plane. One of them was completely and absolutely relaxed on the flight. He was enjoying himself. The other was fearful and nervous at every bump on the flight. The plane takes off. It travels through the air. 
it lands at its destination. So my question to you is this. Which one of these two passengers got off the flight safely? The confident one? Or the one who was scared? Which one? They both did. Because friends, it is not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the sturdiness of what you place your faith in. And this passage is teaching us that when you believe in God, and when you believe in Jesus Christ, that is the most sturdy thing in all the universe to anchor your life on. And because of that, even if you're nervous, friends, even as if you're, if you're fearful, He will carry you through death and resurrection to eternal life. And He will be the one who keeps you to the very end. Friends, Jesus is the one who knows the Father intimately. And He has made Him known to you. He's the one who's about a great work in this world. And by calling you to Himself, He's calling you to a work that He's already engaged in. And as He's sending us out in simple ways and extravagant ways, He's sending us out together with His presence. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we admit to you that we need faith to strengthen us. And we ask you today, Father, to grant us that faith. Help us to see, Father, that the strength of our faith is not what matters. It's the object of our faith. So we pray, Father, through every means that has been put before us today, the songs and the sermon and the prayers, that our hearts would be directed at the, at the source of our faith, who is Jesus Christ, at the object of our faith, who is Christ alone. We do pray, Father, that you would calm anxious hearts today. We would calm hearts that are troubled about the COVID-19 situation, about career, about family, about what they're doing in life, that you would draw near to many who are here, that they may know you and be found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.